Well, every, every year during Christmas time, magazines and newspapers always come out with articles on, did the Christmas story really happen? Was Jesus real? And if he was real, was he really born on December 25th? This year, that hasn't been the case, though. There have been almost no stories in major publications asking those questions. And while most of those uh, articles just bring up objections to the reliability of the the gospel accounts and whether Jesus was a historical figure uh, that had been answered a thousand times over, I find it interesting that this hasn't been the case this year. Part of it, I think, has to do with the intensity of world events over the past few months, particularly with Hamas and Israel. People are more concerned with what is going on over there than if a liberal journalist writes another article attacking the historicity of the nativity event. But that's only part of it. I think the other part of the reason is summed up by an author of a blog article from a couple years ago where this particular author wrote, quote, Christmas is a wonderful secular holiday. And there's a sense in which that is true. Go to any store playing Christmas music, and it's not O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's Mariah Carey singing, All I Want for Christmas is You. (laughs) The heart of Christmas is not Christocentric, but consumer-centric. Lilith Marcus, writing an opinion piece for NBC News a couple years ago, wrote this, quote, The Christmas most people celebrate isn't about Christianity, though. It's about capitalism attempting to reconcile the desire to sell everyone as much stuff as possible with religious diversity. It's hardly about Jesus as as much as it is about Santa and reindeer and elves that can be for everyone. It's about the dozens of schlocky made-for-TV rom-coms with Christmas themes and whole scenes dedicated to making Santa-shaped cookies and the radio stations that turn over their playlists to Christmas music from Thanksgiving to New Year's and the well-intentioned generic holiday cards that just happen to come in secular shades of red and green instead of blue and silver. So the more secular Christmas becomes, the less one has to deal with the origin stories surrounding it. But then the author said something that I thought was very interesting. Because right after that paragraph, she says this, quote, but secular Christmas is just religious Christmas with cuter clothes and better PR. It's interesting to me because the author isn't a Christian. In fact, she doesn't even celebrate Christmas. But she recognized that no matter how much you try to dress it up, at its core, it is still a religious holiday. It doesn't matter if someone has Taylor Swift's Christmas tree farm playing on YouTube in the background because she can't sing that song without saying the name Christ. Because it's impossible to really separate Christmas from Christ, the Western world has collectively decided to give it a nod while we dress it up in more palatable clothing. We give it a nod. We give a nod to the meaning of Christmas with the nativity scene on cards, a nativity set that you can display on your mantle. But those are usually sold right next to giant red stockings or red and green ornaments or a giant sign that says 25% off of everything because they want you to buy and buy and buy. And I say this as one who loves Christmas. It's my favorite holiday. 
I love the colors, I love the lights, I love the shows, I love the music, I love the atmosphere of Christmas because for a brief moment, everything does actually seem magical. But what if the cuter clothes and the better PR that secular Christmas is trying to put on religious Christmas is actually muting a more glorious, more life-changing reality than any cheesy Christmas movie could offer? What if all the lights and colors and magic are trying to convince you that eating out of the dog bowl is better than feasting at the king's table? That getting a present you won't care about in three months is better than a reward that will never dull in its beauty or wane in its glory for all eternity? To see that, we need to remove those cute clothes for just a minute. We need to remove those cute clothes and really take a look at what is going on in the Christmas event. What is taking place in that nativity scene? But we're not going to do that from the Gospels. Rather, we're going to let the Apostle Paul talk to us about what happened on Christmas Day. And he does this from Philippians chapter 2. And so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn, turn there, Philippians chapter 2. And to follow along as we read verses 5 to 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." And here, in this text, we have the Christmas story from the divine point of view. Here we move away from donkeys and mangers and shepherds and magi, and we're brought face to face with the Christ before Christmas. And then the, the mind-blowing reality of what exactly took place on Christmas Day. Now, there's so much here that we could legitimately spend several weeks, if not several months, uh, swimming in the theological deep end of each of these clauses. But today, we're going to paint with kind of broad strokes. And we're going to take this passage in four stages. And so the first is Christ before Christmas. Christ before Christmas. Look again at verse 6. It says, Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so Jesus here is the sovereign Lord. He is God. Don't, don't hear that word form and think, oh, well, all that means is kind of on the outside. He just looked like God, maybe like an angel or, or something else like that. But as to his nature, he wasn't God. That's not what it means. That's not what those words mean here. Being in the form of God has to do with essence. It has to do with his very nature. It refers to that unchanging, unalterable innate essence. As to his nature, he is God. That's why Matthew can call Jesus Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
It's why John can begin his gospel with, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As to his very nature and essence, he was divine. It's why in John 8, we read that Jesus told the Jews, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him. It's why in John 12, John can cite the prophet Isaiah and then say in verse 41 that the glory of the Lord that filled the temple, that was Jesus' glory that Isaiah saw. This is why Jude can say that it was Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt and then destroyed those who didn't believe. It's why the author of the book of Hebrews can say that he, Jesus, is the one through whom the world was created, that he is the, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is where we have to start. We can't start the story with the baby because you miss the significance of the baby. Before Jesus was a baby in a manger, he was eternally God sustaining the universe. In John 17, 5, Jesus prays, and now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus shared in the glory of the Father before the world ever was. And so not only is Jesus God, but we also see here the distinction of persons. Jesus is not the Father, but the Son. And Christmas is all about the Father sending the Son. That's John 3, 16, right? For God loved the world in this way. He sent his one and only son. And the son willingly came in obedience to the father. Paul writes at the end of verse six, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now this this does not mean that that this equality was something outside of himself that he was trying to get uh, get a hold of as if he was showing great restraint by not getting something that wasn't actually his. That's not what it means. As we've seen, Jesus is truly and eternally God. But as Stephen Lawson says, quote, Jesus did not cling to the full exercise of the prerogatives of his deity. This doesn't mean that he stopped being God or that Jesus emptied himself of any of his divine attributes, but rather he took on something. He became something. And what was that? That leads to the second point which is Christ at Christmas. Listen again how Paul describes this event. Right? This, this is Christmas right here. This is what Christmas is all about here in verse 7 in the beginning of verse 8 of Philippians 2. He says, but he, Jesus, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Today is Christmas Eve, tomorrow is Christmas Day. I know everyone has a hundred different things going on in preparation for the holiday, and, and that's okay. But, but for this moment, I want you to put all of that aside, and I want you to set before your mind the awesome reality of what is being celebrated. It's not that you get presents. It's not that you get to see family and friends. It's not even that a baby was born 2,000 plus years ago in a tiny village in the, middle of, in the Middle East. 
Listen to these words from John Murray. Because what took place on Christmas Day was that he who never began to be in a specific identity of the Son of God began to be what he eternally was not. The infinite became finite. The eternal and supratemporal entered time and became subject to its conditions. The immutable became mutable. The invisible became visible. The creator became the created. The sustainer of all became dependent. The almighty infirmed. All is summed up in the proposition, God became man. Do you realize how astounding that is? Do you realize how amazing that is? Put whatever cute clothes you want on secular Christmas. There is nothing that Santa, some elves, and some flying reindeer can do to match the history-altering event that was the incarnation. God himself entered into creation and became a man. He was born of a woman. He walked on this earth. He spoke with countless people. He became tired. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He wept at the tomb of his good friend Lazarus. He was fully human and yet fully God. Amazingly, Paul doesn't just say that he became a man. He writes that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, not by giving up divinity, but by adding something to himself, something that wasn't there before by taking the form of a slave. Here's the other amazing thing about Christmas. Here is God come in the flesh, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he came to be a servant to others. He came not to be served, but to serve. Luke twenty-two twenty-seven. Jesus says, but I am among you as the one who serves. He gave up the throne of heaven for a feeding trough. He gave up his heavenly royal robes for the tattered clothes of a slave. You often hear during this time people talking about the spirit of Christmas. And by that, some people mean joy, others peace, others generosity. One author wrote in an article titled, How to Live Up to the True Spirit of Christmas. This is what the author writes, quote, So whether you are a Christian or have more of a secular spirituality, it may well be wise to recapture something of the historical spirit of the Christ Mass message by engaging in the responsible use of money and time, choosing positive consumption practices, while seeking to foster good relationships with family, friends, and colleagues. Moreover, pay careful attention to issues such as the gender division of labor and responsibility by sharing the work and effort. In doing so, you just may have a happier Christmas. So what they're saying are those that, that captures the spirit of Christmas. Now, perhaps you will have a happier Christmas if you do those things, but that's not the spirit of Christmas. The spirit of Christmas is humility. It's humbling yourself. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, James and John come to Jesus and they ask him, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And Jesus is probably thinking, oh, come on, guys. What, all right, what, what do you want me to do for you? What is it they wanted? They wanted to sit on his right and left hand. They wanted 
to be next to power. They wanted to have a high position. But Jesus tells them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so the true spirit of Christmas, the attitude of true Christmas people, is one of service and humility. Notice that Christ said that at the, at the end of his serving, that that serving would go all the way and result in him giving up his own life. And that takes us to the third point, which is the purpose of Christmas. Paul writes in Philippians 2.8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Christmas does not exist for the sake of Christmas. There is a purpose behind it. There is a reason that it happened. God humbled himself and became a man, a a baby born in a manger so that he would die. The wooden feeding trough is exchanged for a wooden cross. The cute barn animals that we see in the nativity scene would soon become hordes of people shouting, crucify him, crucify him. But that's why he came. That's why Christmas exists. He came to die for sinners. Every now and then you see signs that say something like, well, Jesus is the reason for the season. And there is some truth to that. But the main reason for the season, the main reason for Christmas is sin. That's the reason for Christmas. It is sin. The spirit of Christmas might be humility, but the reason for Christmas is sin. And it ought to be a reminder that the one who created the world had to enter into it in order to deal with the sin of humanity, with my sin and your sin. What you celebrate tomorrow is not just the birth of the God-man, but the beginning of the end of the stronghold of sin. Paul writes in Romans 8, 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, right? That's Christmas right there, right? By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's, that's Christmas. Jesus was truly man. But it's in the likeness of sinful flesh. He wasn't sinful. He was truly man. But he was not a sinful human. In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Again, in Romans 5, 6 to 8, Paul writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christmas is the plan of the gospel put into action in space and time. 
And the call for love and joy and peace that we constantly see this time of year can truly be ours if we believe, if we trust in him, if we trust that in his death he truly did take our sins on his body on the cross. That he bore the wrath of the Father in our place so that we might be forgiven. So that we might have true peace, true joy, true love, true humility. He died so that we might not get caught up in present giving and present getting, but so that we would know what Christmas is truly about and we would find our awe and wonder in the glory of Christ and not in the dull facsimile that Christmas presents itself to be. Well, fourth and lastly is the end goal of Christmas. Paul writes in verses 9 to 11, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Christmas exists so that Christ might be exalted and God be glorified. Christmas ultimately exists so that we would turn our gaze away from the shining lights of the Christmas tree, away from the presence, and look up and behold Christ magnified and God glorified. Because Jesus loves the Father and was obedient to the Father, even to the point of being made sin and dying a horrific death, the Father exalts him. The Father exalts the Son because he loves to exalt the humble. That's the law of heaven. Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And what, what is that name? What is the name that he has? It's not the name Jesus. Now, I know what you're thinking. It literally says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. But the phrase, the name of Jesus there, doesn't mean the name Jesus, but rather the name Jesus possesses. And what name is that? It's Yahweh. It's Yahweh. Why do I say that? Because Paul is drawing from the Old Testament here. He's drawing from Isaiah 45. In Isaiah 45, 18, it says, For thus says Yahweh, Yahweh is the one speaking, Right? He, and what does he say? Verse 23, to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess to God. Yahweh speaks this of himself. So the name that Jesus possesses is the name Yahweh because that is his name and who he is. And so every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord. He is Yahweh. And is that not what was proclaimed by the angels on Christmas Day? As they announced, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It was announced at his birth and it is demonstrated and declared in his exaltation. Christ Jesus is Lord, therefore you owe him your allegiance. He is worthy of your worship and praise. And all of this, all of this, all of Christmas, the whole plan, all of it took place 
to the glory of God the Father. The ultimate goal of Christmas, of your life, of all of existence, is the glory of God. In Isaiah 43, 7, we're told that we were created for God's glory. In Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, what we consider mundane events like eating and drinking are to be done for God's glory. Christmas exists for the glory of God. So whatever you are doing tomorrow, ponder anew the reality of what Christmas is really about and be amazed that the eternal, infinite God would enter into his own creation as a man, and not just as a man, but a servant whose whose life of service would lead to death, and not just death, but death on a cross for you and for me. But in his resurrection and ascension, he is demonstrated to be your Lord and my Lord so that we might bow before him and sing, Gloria in excelsis Deo, glory to God in the highest. It's all for his glory. Don't accept the the cute clothing and the seductive PR of secular Christmas because underneath is a glory that will enrapture your heart beyond anything you can imagine in this life. At Jesus' birth in Luke 2, 13 to 14, this is what we read. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, at his birth, at Christmas, what is Christmas headed towards? Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. That's the end goal of Christmas, the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us to not be enraptured by the dull flickering lights of what Christmas presents itself to be, but that you would help us to see that what it's about is the shining of a glorious sun, and that we might want to look at the sun and not just flashing lights on a tree. Help us to recognize that what we celebrate tomorrow It's not just the birth of Jesus, which we do, but it is the entering into of creation of the one who created it. Help us to think about that. Help us to be in awe of that. And help us to realize why that had to happen. That our sin demanded punishment. And the only way we could be forgiven was for God himself to come and take that sin upon him. These are amazing truths, eternal truths. Help us not to lose sight of them. Help us not to lose sight of them. Help us to spend the day for your glory. For your glory. Glory to God in the highest. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.